So this is our Simon Dong reading group, continuing our reading of imagination and invention. Uh, we're in part one, um, uh, section A, uh, and we're at the beginning of subsection four on page 49 of the PDF, uh, or sorry, of the uh, English translation. I think it's the same pagination in the PDF and the printed book. Um, so what we looked at last time was the, uh, so we started on part B of the, uh, or sorry, section B of, of part one. Um, so this is the images in states of expectation and anticipation. So we're, we're going through his uh, cycle of the image that he's uh, set out in the introduction. So the image goes through this cycle where we start with anticipation, um, which happens before the encounter with the object. And then we have the actual uh, encounter with the object itself. Uh, and then we have um, the sort of persistence of the image after the encounter of the object with the object. And then this three-part cycle repeats at um, three levels. So uh, there's the level of what he called the biological level or sometimes the primary level. Uh, so in this level, it's the entire organism that responds to the image either by um, uh, you know, attacking or running away or some other sort of whole organism response to this image. And then the second level is what he calls the psychical level, though he, he says that this is not entirely um, satisfactory. Um, uh, but this, so this second level is one where it's no longer the whole organism that responds, but there's some sort of uh, differentiated response of the organism so that, uh, for example, uh, in anticipation, the, the organism um, now has some sort of um, image of possible alternative actions, for example, or possible alternative states of affairs. Uh, and the organism can, uh, in certain cases, can weigh these different alter alternatives against each other and, um, uh, you know, choose a, a course of action based on some sort of decision. Um, and, uh, and then the third level, which we may get to today, I'm not sure how, how far we'll go, um, but the third level is the level of reflexive thought. So this is where we sort of explicitly take our thinking as, an, as a, the object of our thought. Um, and so um, he primarily has in mind here philosophy as a, a kind of reflexive thought, but other um, sort of modes of making our thought into an object uh, also appear. So we can think of uh, religious ideas uh, along these lines and um, uh, I think potentially artistic creation as well. Uh, I'm not sure if Simon Dog explicitly addresses that in this uh, set of lectures. Um, but uh, yeah, so we looked at um, this, the, the first two, so he, he goes through the cycle sort of transversally. So he goes through the anticipation uh, phase at each of the levels. Uh, and then the next section that we'll get to probably next time, uh, he goes through um, uh, the, the present, the um, encounter phase uh, at each level, and then he'll go through the um, recollection phase at each level. Uh, so we saw the uh, the second level, uh, the, sorry, the first phase at the second level. So we're talking about psychological anticipation uh, in the, the first couple sections that we read last time. Uh, so one instance of this is uh, phobias that he talks about um, in relation to uh, sort of folklore and legends in, in Europe. Uh, and so he talks about this... Um, Sort of folklore uh, or legendary image of the of the toad as this sort of uh, dangerous poisonous creature that you know spits venom and and so on 
Uh, and so he points out that this is not um, sort of based on any real perception of a toad. So it's not like you encounter a toad, observe that it spits venom, and then form this concept of the toad, uh, because toads uh, in reality don't spit venom. They, they do have uh, toxins in their skin, but they are not um, sort of dangerous creatures that you should um, be afraid of. Um, you, uh, uh, so you, you have this sort of phobic image of the toad where you have these fears that are sort of projected outwards onto this other uh, entity. Um, and and uh, he makes this interesting argument about um, the, the whole sort of set of images related to ogres and other um, uh, creatures that uh, eat human beings. Um, and he, he argues that this is a sort of outward projection of uh, the um, desire that people might experience in, for example, when they're uh, in a famine or um, in a city under siege, they might experience the desire to actually eat their neighbors um, to alleviate their hunger. Uh, but then they sort of um, reject that desire uh, outwards. They project it onto someone else and say this is like a, a sort of monstrous desire that someone else would have, some other creature would have not something that I would actually, um, you know, desire for my own part. Uh, and um, and he he sort of alludes, he, he just makes a sort of quick mention, but like he talks about how in, in our contemporary societies, we have other types of um, sort of phobic uh, responses that, um, that uh, so at the individual level, there are people that um, are, you know, claustrophobic or agoraphobic or, um, have uh, various other um, phobias, so they they you know there are certain situations that they avoid because um, they have this overpowering fear of these kinds of situations, uh, and often the sort of thought process that accompanies these fears is uh, a kind of anticipation of something horrible that would happen. Uh, so, like in the claustrophobia example that that Simon Simon Don talks about here. He uh, he says about it's this fear of asphyxi asphyxiation. Um, so you, if you're trapped in a subway tunnel, for example, you you start to fear that you're going to run out of air, even though of course the amount of air compared to the number of people it, it means that that would like take probably uh, a very long time to happen, and so there's no real danger of that happening. Um, but uh, it's this sort of anticipation of uh, a future horrible event that you sort of that uh, overpowers you and you know prevents you from uh, you know performing certain actions or uh, you know uh, entering into certain situations and so on uh, and then he looked at um, Lucretius's uh, specific argument about uh, certain kinds of fear or certain um, developments that occur in relation to fear and it's this doubling of uh, um, doubling of the self in the fear of death uh, so Lucretius uh, argues that our fear of death has to do with this sort of imaginary uh, experience where we, we think of ourselves as both the, the corpse uh, and also like sort of standing next to our corpse and mourning ourselves. So we, we sort of split ourselves into two in, in our fear of death. And we, so we imagine, you know, that we'll be sort of standing there and thinking, you know, all of the things that, uh, that I could have done, all of the experiences that I never had and so on, you, you sort of mourn yourself. Uh, whereas uh, as a good materialist, Lucretius holds that death is just um, the end of experience. There's no uh, um, 
sort of continuation of the self after death, the soul, which is made up of various light atoms inside the body, just sort of dissipates after death. And, uh, and so there's no more uh, experience after death than there is uh, experience before birth. Uh, and so, um, yeah, this, this sort of um, splitting of the self or doubling of the self is, is the sort of imaginary accompaniment or imaginary anticipation of death. And uh, likewise, there's also a, a sort of doubling of our fear or an externalization of our fear into our images of the gods or of supernatural powers that um, that uh, uh, sort of um, bring about these phenomena that we fear. So he talks about the thunderstorm. Uh, so um, whereas uh, animals might sort of run away from a thunderstorm or try to run away, um, human beings recognize that running away is futile but um, they sort of project the, the fear that, and the helplessness that they feel in, in the face of the thunderstorm onto some supernatural entity that they can uh, supplicate, they can you know, perform sacrifices or uh, make prayers or do something to try to um, alleviate the thunderstorm or prevent themselves from being hurt by it. Um, and, and then this image of this entity that brings about the thunderstorm this sort of projection of our fear onto something outside ourselves, this image then <clears throat> then persists after the thunderstorm and forms our sort of image of the God who brings about thunderstorms. And, uh, and uh, so then we, we have this obligation to worship this entity, to perform sacrifices and so on, um, to prevent future, um, future thunderstorms. Uh, and then the next section or subsection was about the alternative. So we looked at the sort of negative states of anticipation of fear in particular, uh, but then there's the other, the other side of anticipation, which is positive states of anticipation, uh, hope and similar phenomena. Uh, and so Simonton points out that um, Lucretius's analysis of religion um, maybe applies to certain gods, especially the sort of public um, worship of the city-states of the Mediterranean and the ancient world. Uh, so you have these gods that you have to, you know, sacrifice to and perform these sort of public rituals. But then there was also this other uh, sort of strand of religion in the ancient world, which is the mystery cults or the initiatory cults. Uh, so Orphism, for example. So you have these religions or these religious practices where people have these um, um, kind of, uh, there were sort of open secrets because everyone was a member of these religions, but... Uh, you weren't supposed to talk about the the rituals publicly or or sort of describe the uh, religious ideas publicly um, but they in general have to do with uh, resurrection uh, or um, immortality and so this is what Simon Don talks about in relation to hope so we we hope to um, be reunited with our loved ones who have died we we have this anticipation of a future state in which we will um, uh, be reunited with them, and and this sort of hope is again projected outwards into uh, a, a sort of ex external reality in which that um, that hope is realized. And so this is um, another set of religious ideas that um, doesn't really fall under the the sort of genealogy of religion that Lucretius um, emphasizes. Uh, and so again, we have this. Uh, anticipation of resurrection. And, and so Simondon talks about this uh, cemetery that has a, an image of a, a rooster um, uh, uh, on top of the, um, uh, the lanterns in the, in the cemetery. And, 
this rooster symbolizes. So in the same way that um, in real life, uh, a rooster crows at dawn and wakes everyone up, uh, this sort of symbolic rooster will crow and wake up the dead uh, and they will return to life. Um, and, and so th it, this is a sort of image that has to do with anticipation of uh, in, in a positive sense. So a hope for uh, the return of the dead, for example. Uh, and then the next bit that we'll see um, today, this is a longer subsection, but um, there are these sort of mixed states. So not purely fear or purely hope, but um, some sort of mix of the two. Uh, so let's go on to that part. If uh, someone else would like to volunteer to read uh, the first page or so. I can read. Um, we're on page 49, is that right? Yes, exactly. So, anticipation images in mixed states, the marvelous as a as category of mixed anticipation. Amplificatory projection always appears in the work of the anticipatory image, either through the centrifugal gesture of pushing away to ward off in transcendentalizing fear, or in the immediate quest of initiatory communication, communion, characterizing the anticipation of renewal and hope. Doubling followed by alienation is the opposite of the initiatory introduction. But such pure cases, visible particularly in religious images, are rare. The mixed case states of expectation where fear and hope intermix in variable proportions is much more frequent. Love, Plato says, is the son of poros and pinia, abundance and privation, and by the same token he is the son of mixed fears and hopes in this case the amplificatory projection continues to exist but it has neither the exclusive sense of a movement towards the outside positing the transcendence of the doubled image as an idol nor that of inner participation according to the world of birth in the immediate hick at non in the encounter of these two movements the tending towards transcendence and the other towards immanence, there occurs a kind of stilling of images projected midway between the movement of true transcendence and the immanence in relation to the subject. An imaginary world of anticipatory images is thereby created, floating between extreme distance and immediate proximity, still like a rainbow which always remains between ourselves and the horizon. We are dealing with a third reality, to invoke the expression Edgar Morin uh, used to characterize certain cultural phenomena and the transmission of information. One example of such third re reality is the marvelous, surrounding princes, artists, and actresses. These figures do not occupy the highest ranks, but they surround those that do, and commerce with them. They are the court rather than the sovereign. The court is akin to the city. It is close to the everyday, like a medi mediation stopping midway. In the warp and woof of the contemporary marvelous, princesses become superior to queens because they are less firmly installed, less distant, and more virtual, since they can become queen. Participation in this marvelous is made possible by the media, especially weeklies, with the largest photos, but also radio and television. Such media represent precisely an intermediary screen floating between background reality and the reality of the subject. 
The time for accessing these screens is leisure time, which belongs to an intermediary category between the insertion in the present of situations and abstravel. Let us note that participation in this intermediary world is made possible by the fact that these marvelous figures are described, photographed, and filmed in the reality common circumstances. Uh, sorry, I, I'll just start the sentence again. Let us note that participation in this intermediary world is made possible by the fact that these marvelous figures are described, photographed, and filmed in the relatively common circumstances of their life, comparable to the common everyday existence we lead. This creates the effect of a subjective repro reproachment. On the other hand, these figures bear signs of belonging to a far away, superior and inaccessible world due to differences of birth, etiquette, extreme wealth, or even spatial distance. Participation in the historical marvelous as an intermediary world arises in the same way through the description of the everyday aspects of the most prestigious historical figures the laughs of kings and the chronicles of lowercase history. The outpouring of desires into the intermediary world of the marvelous is correlated to an impoverished horizon of the real. The recourse to the marvelous born from limits experienced in everyday life results in depriving real life integrated to the social body of a part of its motivation. The recourse to the marvelous translates the existence of powerful limits and the monotony of situations or tasks, like those of a housewife or a typist harboring no great hopes to see their condition experienced as limited and determined ever change. The novel was long the support for the activity of the imagination as a power of escape. It operates an imaginary deployment of personal power through the participation in the acts of the protagonist. Serialized, the novel directly feeds states of expectation and anticipation through the suspense it creates between installments. This temporal modality, which is essential here, translates into a loss of interest caused by the premature revelation of the end. The preservation of the state of expectation after the end of the novel may lead to multiple sequels, unlimited continuations of episodes, as we see in 19th century novel. Each type of expectation state evinces a corresponding kind of marvelous. Cinderella dreams of the prince, while warriors amidst insecurity and danger and the confusion of threats of battles think about the great, manifest, and illustrious deeds in which one can count on the clarity of a just cause and on supernatural aid. The qualities of the marvelous are the antitypes of those of lived reality. Right. Uh, yeah, we can stop here. Thanks. Um, yeah, so this is, uh, so the, these mixed states of neither pure fear nor pure hope um, so we have these anticipations in our everyday lives or, or in some sort of connection with our everyday lives where we both um, have some fear and have some hope and, and have this. Uh, so Simon Dong argues that um, these types of images form a sort of intermediate reality um, that's sort of uh, in the world, but not quite in the world. Um, so it's neither sort of um, positive outside the world, like the, the images of fear, these gods that 
um, send us thunderstorms and other punishments um, uh, when it's not something uh, sort of imminent to our world, like the the hope that we have um, that the dead will be returned to us. Um, it's, it's this sort of mixed or intermediate state. Um, and he talks about in our contemporary societies, these um, uh, sort of celebrity figures um, and not just, uh, and like he mentions um, uh, actresses, but I think the, the uh, example that he talks about about princesses may be a, a more um, uh, uh, appropriate example here um, because these are um, uh, people that, uh, you know, are depicted as being sort of outside of the realm of the of the normal of uh, of the everyday, uh, and they have the, something sort of um, uh, magical about them or something uh, uh, extraordinary about them. Uh, and and so I think um, and I think his comment about how the princess is more um, sort of uh, has more value in in this sense than the queen I think is uh, is a a pretty apt remark and, and made me think of. Um, the whole sort of um, um, I don't know what to call it exactly, but the the relation to Princess Diana, as you know, people talked about her as the print the people's princess, and there was this sort of um, popularity of uh, of her, and there's the of course her tragic death and everything. There's a whole kind of romance around her, um, and uh, as opposed to you know Queen Elizabeth had you know was sort of a remote figure, and uh, there was never any sort of um, this, there was never a similar sort of popular uh, sort of romance around her life. Um, and I think this uh, holds in general for the royals. Uh, there's there's like this idea of them, as they're, they're sort of celebrities, but they're more than like regular celebrities. Um, uh, they have this sort of um, uh, semi-mystical power about them or something like that. Um, and uh, uh, in particular, the... The, I mean, the, the king and queen or whoever is the reigning monarch uh, tends to be sort of remote, but it's the prince and princess uh, figures that uh, seem to have the most uh, sort of draw or attractive power in the sort of public imagination. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's this sort of state of virtuality that, as Simondon puts it, that, um, you know, they, they have the potential to become the king or the queen or or something like that, but they are not yet. So they they have this sort of anticipatory quality built into the position that they occupy um and um yeah and and yeah this i mean the royal sort of uh the media obsession around the royals is not something that i am particularly interested in either um and uh yeah so this is an interesting sort of um diagnosis of what's going on in that uh sort of world um uh, something that i think i find sort of alien to me um but um the other so the other aspect of this is that um the these sort of figures of um yeah the the royals or these sort of celebrity figures uh provide us with or provide the people who engage in this sort of um imaginary relation to them they provide a kind of escape from a reality that is experienced as uh limiting or um uh sort of too um, too confined. So, so he talks about here the uh, the sort of uh, figures of the the housewife uh, and the typist. Uh, and again, so this is like 1950s, 1960s um, uh, sort of social reality where where these were sort of um, uh, conceived as positions that would uh, be limiting. Uh, so many 
women who were in these positions would have experienced these uh, these social rules as being limiting and not offering opportunities for uh, advancement, for sort of exercise of their capacities and so on. Um, but then uh, sort of living vicariously through these celebrity figures allows you to escape this limiting reality. And uh, and then Simono talks about the novel as another kind of um, um, means of escape from, from reality. Um, and um, yeah, so this was especially in the 19th century, um, um, sort of the rule of the novel in popular life. You know, there were all these, uh, you know, Charles Dickens, for example, had, you know, very popular uh, serial novels that, so they were published in installments in uh, newspapers or magazines or whatever. And um, um, yeah, so these novels were very popular and they were a means of escape. So people would sort of imagine themselves in into the situations of the novel. And um, uh, today probably is more the case that, that uh, TV shows um, maybe provide these types of uh, escapes from reality. So people uh, and, and you have TV series that sometimes last, uh, well, not so much anymore, but uh, sometimes last for many years uh, with new situations arising. And uh, you can always sort of extend uh, the situation into a new, uh, a new set of events, a new story. Um, and and you can imagine yourself into the role of the protagonist, and you can think of yourself as you know heroic or um, uh, you know whatever other uh, sort of qualities you wish you had. Um, so yeah, this this is uh, this sort of intermediate um, reality of something that is uh, within the world, but sort of outside of the ordinary uh, or everyday life. I thought the the part about the limiting social roles was interesting in relation to the section on Lucretius. Um, it seems like, you know, the discussion of the thunderstorm that gives rise to the need for a very powerful supernatural being to which you can make supplication in an extremely dangerous situation produces this extremely transcendent image. But these other unpleasant situations which are less dangerous than you know great natural disasters also create the kind of expectation that that amplifies an image just one that is not it's like there's less you know force behind it because it's a fear of monotony or you know dissatisfaction with your life so it produces this image kind of in the middle distance yeah, and I think uh, so. It's it's less uh, powerful in the sense that it it um, doesn't have this sort of life and death significance. Um, but then there's also this mixture of um, the fear of yeah uh, you know being sort of stuck in a dead end job or um, you know living in this situation where you uh, feel that your capacities are not being exercised. Uh, there's sort of this fear on the one hand, but then also this um, hope of you know what if one day. Uh, you know, I married a prince or I became a famous actor or, uh, you know, a, uh, you know a, a, an artist or whatever other sort of celebrity figure. Um, you know, you, you have this sort of imaginary anticipation of a future state where you sort of escape from the realm of the ordinary and, uh, and you know, enter into this marvelous world. Um, so there's this mixture of, yeah, fear of being stuck in a, in a, a situation that you feel is sort of constraining and then uh, anticipation of an imaginary future where you escape that world. And so it's, it's um, 
yeah, this mixture of both uh, fear and anticipation of, or and and hope um, that makes it have this sort of um, semi-transcendent, semi-imminent quality that is sort of in the world, but not quite uh, everyday life uh, sort of position. Yeah, maybe this is like kind of quibbling with Simon Don, but I think that in the like thunderstorm scenario, isn't like obviously there's a powerful affect of fear, but isn't there also, isn't the, the whole point of, of inventing a God that you can like make prayers to, to save you from the storm seems to be a kind of hopeful gesture as well. So maybe it's not, you know, there's a mixture of uh, fear and hope in that scenario as well. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, I think, you know, he, he points to these two sort of extreme uh, cases of, you know, pure fear and pure hope. Um, but uh, I think we can probably say that these maybe the pure extremes would never uh, fully be realized. Uh, there would never be a situation of, of pure fear with no mixture of hope or pure hope with no mixture of fear. Um, and uh, and so we always have to do with these intermediate um, um, images that have a mixture of both. But the question is, like, what is the balance of the two uh, or the preponderance of one over the other in, in any given image? Um, and, and so we have some images where there's a much greater uh, sort of element of fear. And, and those are the, the images of the gods who demand a sacrifice. Um, and then we have these other images where we have a much greater um, element of hope, like our, our hope to be reunited with our loved ones. Uh, and then we have this sort of intermediate ones where they they are sort of approximately even uh, the the hope and fear are, are uh, approximately even and these are the sort of images of the marvelous within the world or of these entities that are um, part of the world but uh, outside of everyday life. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next uh, page or so. So we're at page fifty one in other instances. Uh, if someone else would like to read from there. I can read. In other instances, this complementary aspect of the imaginary with respect to the real resides in the object rather than being figured in the unfolding of a hero's action, which permits the participation of the subject. Freighted with expectation, the bearer of the outcomes of desire, the object is endowed with a metamorphic power, as in the golden age or in tales and myths. Often, the animal is in fact a disgraced human who must be redeemed and saved with love and courage, even through a real sacrifice. The key for the future lies in the intensity of the present state of desire bearing on an object of ignoble but transfigurable appearance. The toad can become a prince again, but only for her who has the courage to allow him in her bed. The bluebird, too, is a prince chained by a spell to his animal state. Other times, the object has not undergone metamorphosis, but is in a state close to death, and only the intensity of desire can bring it back to life. Sleeping beauty, wounded by the shuttle, kept her golden colors but lay in a castle surrounded with thorns and brush said to be haunted by an ogre only the ardor of a prince quote-unquote a fire is needed for all the trees thorn and brush to retreat on their own closing back as soon as the prince has passed the extreme desire is projected in the object which it seeks and transfigures the prince too was waiting quote is it you my prince unquote she says to him quote for as long as i have been for so long i have been awaiting you unquote there is an important difference between the object susceptible to metamorphosis as base of expectation laden with desire and fear and the symbol object, which does not undergo metamorphosis, but remains the analogon of another reality. 
Cinderella's lost Cibeline slipper is an analogon, a symbol that allows the young woman to be found again. In another tale by Perrault, the skilled princess, the glass distaff of Finette, Nonchalant, and Babillard are analogon of their virginity, only Finette keeping her distaff in- intact. The gold ring of donkey skin, which the prince finds in the cake, plays the role of an analogon, allowing him to find the true princess under the tramp everyone despises. In this last tale, the symbol ring functions as a trigger of the metamorphosis of the tramp into a princess, at the same time that it exacerbates desire through waiting. The ring was tried out by all the women of the country, from the higher to the lower classes, from city to countryside, when at last the turkey keeper is brought in. The symbolic link that exists between objects, according to the categories of anticipation, is not the expression of perceptual communication between two realities. The slipper or the ring are not perceptually linked to the woman desired. They are modes of becoming that found the analogy, because the symbol object elicits, in miniature, the same desires and fears that symbolized it. The gold and diamond ring is precious, it can be lost, it is hidden in flower and is discovered suddenly, like donkey skin who, hidden under her rags and the soot covering her cheeks, reveals the splendor of her white dress as the donkey skin falls off when she tries on the ring. Glass distaff is a symbol of virginity because it breaks all at once, irreversibly. There are also perceptual symbols that psychoanalysis has studied, but those of the marvelous exist in the dimension of the modes of anticipatory becoming. They are anti-perceptual, implying the categories of action rather than perception. So... Yeah, I guess I'm trying to understand how these are intermediate symbols, but it seems like in the uh, the example of the metamorphoses, they're intermediate because the object undergoes a change from a disappointing reality to a hoped-for future, um, and the sort of transitional objects in the second paragraph uh, even if they don't themselves change, they symbolize something that is going to bring about a change to some hoped-for outcome, I think. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, I think, yeah, so one question is, like, how do these sort of, um, how do the images in these legends um, or fairy tales, how do they differ from the images uh, that that were discussed in the, the previous sections, um, the the fearful images of the gods and the hoped-for images of the um, resurrection of the dead. Um, and yeah, so this sort of uh, ambiguity or this transformation is part of it, I think, um, that the um, the toad is sort of, uh, um, has the capacity to turn into, to turn back into a prince. Um, um, and uh, yeah, so this hated or despised um, animal is is sort of a, a hidden uh, manifestation of um uh you know some sort of marvelous reality and uh and these sort of transformations of um like the cinderella story for example um sort of fall under the same category as the you know the typist who imagines that you know one day she'll become a famous actress or um marry a prince or whatever um uh so it's the same type of story where the the sort of um servant girl is has this imaginary um transformation into um into uh, a princess 
Um, and so I think it's this capacity to, yeah, undergo this transformation from this despised reality to uh, this marvelous reality um, that underlies these kinds of images or this category of images. Um, and then there's the this uh, analogon factor that that Simondo also brings up, or I think we can connect this with his idea of the symbol. Um, so this is something that came up a lot in in volume in uh, volume one of the um, uh, individuation book. Um, the, he he constantly uses this term symbol in this um, sort of unique sense derived from the ancient Greek practice of taking a token of some kind of a, a stone or a, a piece of, of clay or whatever and breaking it in half. And then uh, each party of, of some sort of social relationship would keep half of this broken token. And then um, they they would, um, you know, unite the two halves um, as a sign of sort of um, recognition of one party by the other. And sometimes these were passed down, um, you know, in families so that your descendants would be able to recognize the descendants of the other party. Um, and so for Simon Do, a symbol is always a sort of um, half of a reality is always a, a portion that has a, a complementary reality outside of itself. And, and so here we have like the symbol, um, um, I think um, the sort of Disney version of Cinderella kind of mixes a, a couple of different um, fairy tales, but you have this glass slipper, for example, uh, in the Disney version, where um, this is this sort of very delicate, um, uh, elegant um, slipper that um, sort of corresponds to to the the um, the princess, the this sort of hidden princess, um, and the the sort of um, despised reality of uh, Cinderella as the servant girl um, ends up being transformed in connection with this slipper, um, and so this the slipper this this glass slipper is a, a kind of um, um, symbol of the the reality of the princess. So it's it's this element that you know fits with the reality of the princess. Um, and uh, so a lot of these stories involve some sort of you have the the slipper, the ring, uh, some of these different stories. Um, um, have, yeah, anyway, there's these sort of objects that symbolize in both our sort of normal sense of the of the word symbol, but also in Simon Do's sense, they have this uh, connection to this other reality that they sort of fit into um, in sometimes a, a very literal spatial sense. Um, they they sort of connect with this other reality uh, that they point towards. And I think the other bit to uh, to mention here is that is what Simon points out is that these um, symbols are not connected to um, to the reality that they point towards in a perceptual sense. So the 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 ring, for example, is um, is found uh, in the cake uh, or bread or whatever. Um, and it sort of points towards this reality of the uh, the princess who will wear the ring, um, but the the prince hasn't yet seen the princess. So this is a kind of anticipatory image as opposed to a perceptual image. Um, and then likewise with the slipper, um, the the prince um, doesn't know who it belongs to, and and sort of has this anticipation of the princess that the the slipper will fit. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next page. Um, if I can get another volunteer to read. Uh, from Access? Uh, yes. All right. 
Access to the marvelous may sometimes be tinted by the supernatural when the metamorphosis of objects requires the intervention of a supernatural power. In such a case, a conversion is the object becoming a reality out of a figuration or a living being from a corpse. Such a change of nature prolongs and amplifies the movement of human feelings that then manifests as a call to supernatural power that might effectuate what human beings can only wish and wait for. It is a miracle that comes after an intense longing. This transpires in the legend of the child a woman offered to the Virgin Mary out of love of the one she had lost. <clears throat> Pardon me. Here, the strongest of human feelings, maternal love, crosses the boundary of the sacred to call for a miracle. We might also allude to The Tidings Brought to Mary by Paul Claudel, where the child of Mara, dead and cold, comes back to life through a metamorphosis when Violaine breastfeeds him. This is indeed a multiple miracle, since it is also the metamorphosis of the young woman, leprous, alone, and abandoned, into a mother breastfeeding her child and into the spiritual wife of Pierre de Caron, whom she faithfully loved. In a simpler yet more general way, legends imply the presence of the supernatural in, a me in metamorphosis we might call amplificatory. Where there was nothing, something becomes manifest. A ground that has turned arid becomes fertile once again, or a corpse is replaced by a living being resuscitated. Hence the knight with the small cask, unable to bring a single drop of water from a well in his cask, feels his heart break and cries at the remembrance of his past faults. A tear falls on the cask's hole, and instantly it multiplies and stirs, the cask overflowing into a lively stream. After Penia comes Poros, out of the very excess of Penia. The same goes for the hagiographic legends in which pilgrim staffs, hard and knotty, sprout roots, leaves, and flowers to revert to living trees. In metamorphosis, the presence of the supernatural allows the irreversible to be unbound from its irreversibility, and what is lifeless to find life again. The saint is the one who inverts the course of the irreversible. Thanks to her, the irredeemable no longer exists. One evening, upon entering into the shop of a butcher who killed three small children, St. Nicholas places his hand on the salting barrel where they lie, and the children come back to life. Thanks to the supernatural, remorse and regret may be transmuted into repentance because there is a renewal of the sense of openness and the dimension of the future, according to which no specific action can create the irremissible nevermore. In this sense, the coherent image of the possible, as an anticipation framed by the future and fear, intervenes in what was called in philosophy the moral life. And we might wonder whether it does not play in as, as essential a role as that granted to obligation. Bergson deeply felt this necessity of openness for moral life, and he linked it to the intuition of movement, while obligation proceeds visa tergo to a force that was determining and necessitating in the order of causes exerted upon the subject by social life. Right. So here we have more um, sort of discussion of the um, transitional nature uh, or transformatory nature of this intermediate object. Um, so it's uh, and, and he talks about these um, legends of states um, as a, a kind of example of this, where uh, what what the um, transformation transformation of the object does or the role that this image of a, an object that undergoes transformation is to reverse the irreversible essentially 
Um, so death as one of the prime examples, um, you can um, bring the dead back to life. Um, but this is a, a different kind of resurrection than um, the type of resurrection that uh, Simon Don talks about in the uh, in relation to the hope for being reunited with our loved ones. Um, so here it's resurrection. Um, generally, these uh, resurrections happen um, sort of immediately after the death of, uh, so in this one legend with St. Nicholas, we have the, the children who have been killed um, and uh, and the saint brings them back to life. Um, so it's not so much, um, and, and uh, I don't know this legend in particular, but often it's not the case that um, the those people in particular are sort of um, uh, missed or that someone uh, has this intense emotion um, that they want to be reunited with these people, but it's the act itself of, of sort of reversing the course of time and bringing uh, these uh, people back to life that manifests the um, the power of the saint or of the the transitional image. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it's not so much that these children are missed and um, sort of the desire to be reunited with them that plays a role in the story. It's the fact that um, the saint has the capacity to reverse this irreversible deed of killing the children. Um, it's this that is sort of emphasized in the image of the saint as the one who can um, uh, bring about a transformation that that undoes these uh, irremediable actions. And then there's this bit um, that I think is, uh, I mean, he doesn't go into it in much detail, but is a pretty interesting remark um, about the role of this type of um, openness of the future in, um, in relation to moral life. Uh, and uh, so he makes reference to Bersan here. And of course, uh, Bersan, um, I mean, his whole sort of philosophical enterprise is about um, the uh, experience of duration and the openness of the future. And um, um, what what he what Simon sees as uh, being relevant about this is that um, our moral life, our sort of capacity to recognize ourselves as moral beings, um, has to do not just with obligations, uh, but also with this capacity for um, bringing about a transformation in. Uh, the way that the world is. Uh, and so, um, I mean, we can think about it, I guess, you know, if if the world were organized in such a way that everything always happened in accordance with moral obligations, then those moral obligations would not really be moral obligations. Um, they would just be sort of laws of nature. Um, uh, so it's only insofar as there is a sort of openness to the future um, that we can uh, sort of recognize certain obligations as being moral ones. Uh, and so the obligation has this sort of uh, constraining aspect to it. It, it sort of forces or, or it it's, um, brings about, uh, you know, the conformity with a certain moral obligation. Uh, but then it has to be sort of um, counterbalanced by this openness of the future as well. Uh, so it's only in a situation where there is a, an actual openness of the future and uh, the, the potential for transformations to occur um, that we we sort of conceive of something as being a moral obligation. And I think we can think about this in uh, in connection also with, um, you know, Simon points to repentance as being sort of the, the maybe less miraculous um, uh, sort of manifestation of this transformation. So um, someone who, um, you know, does something 
that it contravenes a moral obligation um, or harms someone else or or whatever the the action might be, um, you know, they might be, you know, we can think of them as as sort of hardened and uh, um, not caring about other people and so on. Um, but there's always this possibility that the person will undergo a transformation and uh, repent of their past actions and change their life uh, in the future. The, this possibility always remains open. Um, and uh, so this openness to transformation is um, uh, an element of moral life um, and is, is sort of what's depicted in this um, miraculous form in these images of the, the saint who brings the child back to life for, um, uh, or all these other sort of um, transformations. One section in this, uh, these paragraphs that Ben just read that is a bit mysterious to me is the end of that first paragraph where he distinguishes these symbols from perceptual symbols. So they're anti-perceptual. Uh, I don't. I don't really understand the distinction he's trying to make there. Is it because they are related to? They're created by some feeling of anticipation, or I mean, obviously, a, a ring is something that you perceive. Although I don't know if the point is that the ring was hidden and had to be uncovered. Yeah, I think the idea here of the these. Uh, um, being anti-perceptual symbols, so anti with an e, as in prior, um, for those listening. Um, uh, so the these symbols are anti-perceptual because they they have to do with an anticipated reality. Um, so the the ring belongs to this anticipated princess that the prince um, has to search the whole kingdom for, um, and uh, it's this sort of anticipated reality of the princess that uh, and and. Um, you know, the anticipation sort of amplifies the value of this uh, reality. You know, the princess must be sort of the most beautiful, the, the most virtuous, et cetera, princess, because uh, she corresponds to this ring. Um, and, and the prince has to search the whole kingdom to find uh, who the ring belongs to or who the ring fits. Um, and uh, um, yeah, so it, it's, it's a symbol that corresponds to an anticipated reality. It's not that the prince first you know, sees the ring and the princess together, and then a sort of associates them together. Um, it's the 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 prince sees the the ring and um, uh, sort of anticipates what the reality um, of the princess that accompanies the ring or that the ring points towards um, anticipates that reality, and uh, that anticipation amplifies the value of the reality that it um, that it uh, points towards. Uh, and so all these images of transformation, um, likewise, have this sort of anti-perceptual uh, anti nature in the sense that um, uh, these stories of saints bringing children back to life are, are, you know, not based on an actual observation of this event happening, but of a, a sort of anticipation of the capacity for transformation that the saint has, uh, you know, the saint has the power of influencing others to transform their lives and so on. Um, and um, yeah, so that's that's why these are sort of uh, anticipatory images or anti-perceptual images. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, I wonder if the perceptual symbols psychoanalysis studied would be more like past-oriented than the expectation-oriented symbols that Simon Don is talking about here. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what he has in mind when he talks about psychoanalytic symbols as being um, perceptual. Um, 
but yeah, so potentially he's thinking of um, the way that, uh, so like in um, analysis of dreams, for example, you uh, you look at um, like one of the um, sort of techniques that Freud uses is to look at the events of the day preceding the dream as, uh, you know, what sort of um, gets incorporated into the dream. And, and Freud has this sort of doctrine that it's always the events of the day of the dream that end up getting incorporated into the dream. Uh, so you you experience some, I don't know, you have an argument with a friend or a, your partner or whatever, um, and some elements of that argument get incorporated into your dream uh, and, of course, transformed and, and used as symbols of other um, sort of unconscious desires and uh, uh, elements of your um, infantile uh, life and so on. Um, but yeah, so these symbols uh, always point to, they always are drawn from our uh, contemporary environment. They're always the, the events of the last day. And um, um, yeah, so I think maybe that's what Simondo has in mind here when he talks about psychoanalytic symbols as being perceptual symbols. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, I can read this, uh, yeah, about a page or so. Okay, uh, when becoming is not conceived as amplificatory, either through the inter intervention of grace as a supernatural amplificatory power, or through the movement of life and creative evolution, the image of the future as individual or collective destiny encounters limits and undergoes a relative closure. The image may be judged and found to be predeterminable, like lives choosing their souls in the Platonic myth. At the moment when the messenger announces that, quote, the God declines any responsibility, unquote, then it is only in relation to the desires and pains felt in the course of previous lives that most of the souls reincarnate in the body of a wrestler, a tyrant, or a peacock. These images of the future, precisely because the God declines responsibility, contain no creative element. They are merely the countertype of situations actually experienced or perceived. The very image of the ideal city is fully determined and limited in a cyclical conception of time that starts again at the end of the great year. The recourse to the marvelous or supernatural is not the only path allowing the imaginary anticipation of the future to exercise its amplificatory power as a factor of reality within projected time. Within individual humans, there are also productive forces which, more modestly, may construct an exclusive world in which the motor schema exerts itself and becomes concretized. It is the work of the amateur, that is, those who act out of love for what they do. The initial postulate of amateurism is a relative dichotomy that separates the theater and object of constructive passion from the time and place of collective obligation. At times, nevertheless, the lineaments of the imaginary world arise in the moments of lesser tension of obligatory collective activity. Ferdinand Cheval, who built for many years his ideal palace in Autrive, would find on his rounds the stones with singular features that he organized into fantastical assemblages. If they were light enough, he would pick the stones on the spot. The heavier ones were collected later with a wheelbarrow. Working alone for years, this man gave shape, as he tells it, to a dream he had had. Among the shapes he created, several, such as the great statues, belong to the category of the, quote, reproductive imagination, unquote, inspired by the Cambodian temples Cheval had seen during his military service. But others, especially, especially the non-figurative assemblages of stones, truly express this amplificatory and proliferating power of the gesture of construction that is diversified by going forward, directed only by the primordial intuition of a line or a motor theme. The Surrealists accorded great importance to the manifestation of human imagination exercised outside the, of the path of imitation. The film Ingress's Violin represents Cheval's ideal palace together with other similar productions by other amateurs. The development of DIY in contemporary industrial societies does not correspond only to certain socioeconomic necessities, disappearance of household staff, high cost of repair and upkeep of main appliances, or the use of complex devices in a decentralized habitat. 
The imperative to DIY also emerges from the organization of a permanent operative availability of tools and materials in a regime of leisure and freedom for the individual. It is the return of honorable and disinterested artisanship in the framework of leisure granted by the occupations of industrial society. The home workshop restitutes the local and independent dimension of production that belonged to the dominio manorial economy. Thanks to it, the worker, the salaried professional, the shop or public employee has immediate access to the tools of production and they become the boss of the whole project. From the first sketch belonging to the intuition of the image to the concrete completion of the project. The imagination as anticipation is thus no longer a function severed from reality and deployed in unreality and in fiction. It triggers an effective activity of realization because the subject who projects the image is the owner of the tools of production and the workable materials needed. The modality of the imaginary is that of potentiality. It only becomes the modality of unreality if the individual is deprived of access to the conditions of realization. Through a close analysis of the characteristics of the appliances required for DIY, we re-encounter the preoccupation with the availability of the fabricating operation in relation to the imaging intention, sometimes taken to a non-functional excess. The machines made for amateurs present themselves willfully and systematically as entirely convertible or adaptable to all tasks, all materials, all sources of electrical power. In actuality, this flexibility is often more apparent than real, and the impression of freedom may be only apparent too, or compensated by a loss of time when, from one task to another, one must change the assembly or combination of tools. Such appliances appear to have been conceived so as to tailor themselves to the feeling of unlimited freedom for virtual uses, thus in the logic of the project in a pure perspective of the future, rather than with the concern for functional use. These all-purpose machines abstractly guarantee a full freedom according to long-term anticipation but they then require the non-simultaneity of the various operations of use, detrimental to the short-term anticipation and adaptation to the present, characterizing the intraperceptual organization of tasks for execution. The rhetoric of virtuality is the index of imaginary anticipation, characterizing the activity of DIY, partially born as a mode of compensation of the constraining regularity, the lack of autonomy, and the fragmented aspect of the tasks of everyday life. Work in pieces in Friedman's expression. We may note the importance of the development of this kind of activity in a society like the United, United States at the high economic level with an important participation by upper classes with no direct connection with the, quote, dark world of working classes, a vestigial form of the factotum in which there is an independence of conception and execution. Since the factotum must at all times answer according to the randomness of emergencies, unpredictable demands unforeseen by the project. To summarize, we can say that the image as motor anticipation is deployed according to different cultural contexts by bringing about an amplificatory metamorphosis of the object, either through identification with an imaginary world where others act in lieu of the subject, in a landscape where the splendor of the real is multiplied, or through a true action on a raw material in the situation of leisure. But in all cases, the effect of anticipation as a priori image is an amplificatory proliferation from a single origin located in the subject. This proliferation multiplies paths and forms in the future. It is the analog of a growth, a maturation, or a development comprising both differentiation and supplemental being, supplément d'être. It enacts towards the future the amplificatory pro projection of the potentialities of the subject's present. Yeah, uh, so Angus has posted in a chat here some links to um, Ferdinand Cheval and his um, ideal palace, which is pretty um, remarkable, uh, The these sort of fantastical constructions that he made apparently just by picking up rocks and and stones uh, as he was you know delivering the mail um, um yeah he sort of some of them uh like the one that uh angus posted in the chat here has a sort of vague resemblance to cambodian temples um so there's a, a kind of 
uh, memory image aspects to them that, that they're sort of um, uh, reproductions of uh, something that he did perceive uh, beca because he was in Cambodia on his military service. Um, but others are sort of just abstract forms that he imagined um, and sort of realized just by putting together these stones. Um, and this general sort of idea of the, the amateur and uh, DIY culture, um, this idea of this sort of um, capacity to produce anything that you imagine, uh, this is a, a sort of general um, phenomenon or general aspect of, of DIY culture where you there's this idea that um, part of the appeal of, um, of this, um, I don't know, cultural activity is to you know have this capacity that you control the whole process you know whereas um a carpenter like a professional carpenter uh for example they have um a client who requests a certain type of object and they have to work according to a certain pattern and produce an object that fits the requirements of the of the client whereas in your home workshop you can um you know, imagine whatever type of object you want and, you know, buy the wood and you have all the tools you need and you, you sort of produce the, the object in accordance with your imagination. And so you, you have no obligation to anyone else and, and you, you have this capacity to bring about um, the, this sort of image. Um, so your, your product um, sort of realizes the image that you um, had only in your mind at the at the outset of the process. Uh, and Simon Dong points out that a lot of the sort of tools and materials and um, uh, other uh, elements that are sold to um, DIY enthusiasts have this um, sort of multi-valent um, or, or polymorphic character in that they, they're designed or they're, they're sold, um, marketed as being um, capable of any type of operation. So it's not just a, a sort of, you know, like the, the tools that a professional carpenter uses might be specialized for a particular kind of operation, but the tools that are sold to the um, amateur who has a workshop in, in their own home, um, those tools will be designed or marketed as being capable of working on any type of wood and, you know, operating at any angle and um, all sorts of, um, variations and uh different possibilities are, are open to this kind of tool so again it's uh it's this kind of um virtuality that is inherent in these images um that the diy enthusiast brings about um in in their operation on whatever sort of materials they work with do you think this line about this kind of strange line where he says there's no direct connection with the quote-unquote dark work of the working classes is he saying that there is that he thinks that in the u.s there's more direct participation in the process of the sort of the work beyond the level of conception and at the level of execution than in france otherwise i'm not sure what he's saying there yeah, I think the idea is that um, the sort of DIY culture um, is is maybe more prevalent in the U.S. than in France, or at least in you know the 1950s and 60s when he's writing about. It. And he actually did visit the U.S. Uh, in, around this time. I, I don't know exactly what what year it was, um, um, but he 
his idea, and you know whether this is accurate or not, his idea is that this was some, something that's more prevalent in the U.S. Um, and uh, you know, one sort of explanation you might think of would be that there's a sort of economic necessity of DIY, of you know, repairing your own appliances and so on. But this contradicts the fact that the U.S., uh, you know, especially at, at this time, was a much richer country than France. Um, so you know, if if this sort of um, uh, repair and you know, DIY work was sort of born of economic necessity, you would expect that France would have more of it than, um, than the U.S. did uh, at that time. But uh, so, and Simon points out that um, even in the sort of upper classes or the, those who have no um, sort of direct connection with um, uh, working class life, um, uh, they also participate. So you find, um, you know, if you if you sort of visit uh, a wealthy suburb, you'll find lots of people that have you know a workshop in their garage where they I don't know repair their cars or they uh, you know have woodworking tools or whatever. Um, uh, and again, these are not sort of out of economic necessity. It's not that they can't afford to take the car to a mechanic and have someone else work on it. It's, it's that um, working on the car yourself is part of how you sort of um, make the car into this. Uh, virtuality that you can um, uh, sort of modify and work on and transform uh, however you desire. Um, and so I think, yeah, this bit about the um, the the dark work of the working classes is um, sort of to contrast this kind of uh, DIY culture with uh, you know what might be what 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 might seem similar um, in the sort of repair work that you do out of economic necessity. Um, so this is a, a a different kind of work process where you are engaging in transformation of uh, materials or objects, uh, not because you have to do it, but because you have this sort of um, Im image of the object as something infinitely transformable. Yeah, think about like a, a Swiss Army knife, but it's like stuffed with like. 60 extra parts that you don't need you know so it's just like this like all-in-one all-purpose sort of yeah and a swiss army knife is a great example because you know i guess the idea of a swiss army knife or like the the sort of utilitarian um version of a swiss army knife would be something that you take when you're camping or you know in doing some sort of outdoors activity where you have uh you don't want to carry you know 10 different tools you have one tool that does all the different things uh but of course like probably 99% of the time when uh, like we don't actually use these kinds of tools in like a camping setting where it does make sense to sort of pack as many tools as possible into one compact uh, package. Um, uh, like, um, yeah, it's this sort of um, capacity to um, uh, do anything with the tool that, um, that we uh, sort of valorize in, in the tool and the tool is marketed as being able to do anything, but uh, you know, most of the time we won't use like anywhere near the, the set of capacities that it actually has. I think in a way in the current DIY scene, the paradigmatic tool is, is the 3D printer, which has an interesting relationship to this. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, so a 3D printer, like part of the whole sort of ethos of 3D printing is that you can print anything like you just imagine it you draw up the designs on your computer and you print it um, and uh, uh, this is sort of like what makes it such a fascinating object for some people is that you can you can just you know pr produce anything uh, and you don't have to um, sort of 
find the right parts and the right, um, uh, you know, components that you have to put together. It, it's all sort of just from your imagination into reality. Um, and so, yeah, this versatility of the 3D printer and this capacity to produce anything you can imagine is uh, is a great example of this kind of um, uh, DIY culture. And uh, but also in 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 relation to the uh, to the economic situation of DIY, right? Um, if you if you look at DIY bases right now, like on the internet, or even like if you go to the make to a maker space, right? Like. A lot of the discussions around DIY start more and more just presuming that you have access to a 3D printer, and there's there's some other stuff where where this works, but that's not really um, an option if you if you're like looking for a solution to a specific problem where you can't afford to go like the um, mass manufactured way if you want. Yeah, and and yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, so. Buying, like if you're just sort of doing DIY out of economic necessity, buying a 3D printer and printing a part for your, I don't know, fridge or whatever, um, is probably not a um, an economical route. It's not going to make sense for you to actually just buy a 3D printer and and design the part for yourself. Um, um, there's a yeah. So in in general, um, the sort of economic necessity. Um, argument is probably going to lead you to instead just buy components uh, like stock components off of eBay or something and uh, and you know fix your your uh, appliance or whatever it is you know using these parts that have already been produced um, uh, it's it's the so the decision to print the part for yourself or print the the object for yourself is not based on uh, in or in general or most of the time is not based on um, you know, a, a sort of economic necessity that this is the the cheapest way of uh, repairing my object. Um, it's often based on this, uh, yeah, this sort of imaginary virtuality of the 3D printer that you can, you know, produce anything with it. Um, so yeah, I think um, the 3D printer is something that I think Simonon would have had a lot of uh, interest in as a as a, a sort of manufacturer of images. And just a sort of biographical note, um, yeah, so um, Simon Rowe, um, yeah, I don't know like a lot about this aspect, but he did um, sort of do DIY stuff himself, you know, repairing electronics, for example. Um, and he, uh, he would, when he was teaching, he would, you know, set up uh, like demos of various electronic um, apparatus uh, for his students and things like that. So he, he's speaking, you know, partly from experience here. He, uh, he participated in this culture as well. So he's not sort of uh, criticizing it and saying this is like bad or something like that. He's he's just sort of pointing out this one aspect of um, the way that this culture um, valorizes this sort of uh, openness of the technical objects um, to uh, use in any capacity of, you know, working on any sort of material and so on. Uh, uh, so yeah, it's something that he's speaking from experience when he's describing this. And um, yeah, so we'll pick up on uh, section C. So the next bit will be the third level. So the anticipatory image at the level of reflexive thought. Um, so yeah, we'll see what exactly that means uh, next time. Uh, okay, so thanks everyone for coming out. Uh, and um, as a reminder, I'm, yeah, so we'll, we'll meet again next week, but the week after that, uh, I'll be away. So we'll take a break for, uh, two weeks and then come back on the, th so 
we have a session next week on the 9th and then two weeks break on the 16th and 23rd. And then uh, we should be able to come back on the 30th, uh, assuming everything works out with my travel arrangements. Um, so yeah, uh, just a reminder for everyone. All right. Uh, so thanks everyone for coming out and uh, see you next week.